what we've got to figure out how to do is how do we broaden our perspectives by listening, by reading publications that are different from ours, background, race, uh, education, other types of ideology. How do we broaden that perspective so that we can reduce the blind spots because we all have them? Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship has valued theological education as a vital component of vocational ministry preparation for more than 25 years. It puts these words to action by investing in students who are current and future ministry leaders in CBF life. The fellowship awards up to 70 scholarships annually to Baptist students enrolled in the Master of Divinity degree program at an accredited institution of higher education. For more information about all that CBF offers students, visit cbf.net slash seminary dash resources. In this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different and play the audio of a forum that was held last month by Simmons College of Kentucky, a historically black Baptist university in Louisville, Kentucky. The forum was on media bias and racism, and I had the opportunity to be one of the panelists on it. It was exciting to be there. This is a, a monthly event that they hold during the school year. They call it the West Louisville Forum, and this particular topic happened to be on media bias. And so I was there along with several other media organization leaders. And so it's a conversation that I think includes some important issues as we think about the role of media and how we consume media today. And so I want to just go ahead and just play that audio for this week's episode of Baptists Without an Adjective. Super excited to be the moderator for the first uh, West Louisville Forum for the 2019-2020 school year. And uh, let's talk about it, all right? Let's bring up our panel. Mr. Andrew Baskins, editor of the American Baptist Newspaper. Mr. Andrew? Right, uh, Ms. Yvonne Coleman Bach, editor of the Louisville Defender newspaper. <laughs> Mr. Brian Kaler, he's the one that's definitely uh, come the farthest. He uh, is here all the way from St. Louis, and he's the editor and president of Word and Way magazine. And we're going to have to share some mics. Uh, we have got an extended guest panel. It's super excited these people decided to take part in this conversation. Uh, up first, Dr. Kyla Story. She is host of Strange Fruit Radio Program and the associate professor of uh, the associate professor of the Department of Pan African Studies and Women Women and Gender Studies at the University of Louisville. That was a tongue twister, Mr. <laughs> Kyla. Thank you so much. Mr. Jason Gardner, her handy co-host, also uh, from Strange Fruit, and you are part of Black Lives Matter Louisville. Thank you so much for being here. Mr. Brad Harrison, former editor of Urban Max Magazine and host of Urban Voices radio program here in the building. Hey, Brad. And we have got Mr. Mark Gunn, owner of Mark Gunn Media, former radio personality for WGZB, what you say, more than 40 years? 40 years. And we definitely have a legend here. Mr. Ivory is here. Yeah. He is the former VP and editor for the Courier Journal. 
Um, so let's go ahead and get started. Today's topic is blind spots, anti-black racism, and implicit bias in journalism. So I'll uh, go to you first, Miss Yvonne. Uh, the Louisville Defender newspaper was created and started to give us a voice. Uh, talk about that. Uh, that's correct. The Louisville Defender newspaper, for you all that don't know, has been in the community for 80 years now. And uh, you know, we've doing a lot of things. You know, of course, times change, so with the times, we have to change, change as well. Uh, but uh, in, in looking at the topic, uh, we're talking about implicit racism in journalism. That is a, a topic that's dear and dear to my heart because that's one of the things that, that we try to fight against. Uh, sometimes you don't see it, sometimes you don't recognize it, but believe me, it's there. Um, and one of the reasons uh, why we have to do that, uh, a lot of people don't realize how you can be conditioned uh, and not even realize and not even know it. Uh, if you see, uh, the only thing that you see about uh, African Americans or other minorities is negative stuff then you know what they say. If you see it long enough, you will believe it, trust me, even if it's not true. So what we try to do with the Louisville Defender newspaper is to show the positive, the very positive things that are happening in the community. Now, some people will say, well, you know, uh, so-and-so was shot, this person was shot, and we didn't see it in the Louisville Defender. No, you did not, and there's a reason for that. It is not that we don't know what's happening. We very much know what's happening. But what we try to do is to bring the positive because you're going to see it everywhere else. You're going to see it when you turn on the TV, uh, the news. You're going to see it when you read some of the other uh, mainstream media. You're going to see it. So that's why we don't let you see it in our newspaper because the pages that we have, which sometimes are not a lot, but the pages that we have are reserved for the positive things because if you don't see the positive, you will not know it exists. So trust me, we know when someone gets shot. We know all of those things. But you don't see it in the local defender newspaper, and that's on purpose. So uh, everyone should read uh, a newspaper that is not of their, of their race, um, because that's the only way that you're going to understand it. That's the only way that you're going to see the positive things. And uh, so it's not just that the local defenders for uh, African Americans to read. No, it's for everyone to read because everyone needs to know the positive things that are happening you know, with African Americans because if we're not there, you may not know it. Uh, Luke Defender is a member of the National Newspaper Publishers Association, which is an association of about 150 um, more black newspapers around the country. And we all have that same mission and we all do that uh, in the communities that we serve. So um, support all of those newspapers. All right, thank you so much, Ms. Yvonne. Brian Kaler, you are joining us again from St. Louis. I've got to give him a shout out because he drove all the way here to take part in this discussion. Uh, have you found implicit uh, bias in any of your publications reporting or maybe, you know, and it could be subconscious. Uh, just stereotypes that are displayed too. Yeah, thanks. You know, when I was driving here, I rented a car to drive here. And so one of the first things that I do when I rent a car is I adjust the side mirrors because there are blind spots on the cars. And so what I, the way I adjust my mirrors is I put my face all the way over to the mirror or over to the window and I adjust that left mirror out so I can just barely see the car. Do the same thing with the midpoint of the car. 
adjust the mirror out so I can barely see the car. Because normally the mirrors are set so that you can see the side of your car, and you don't need to see the side of your car, because if there's a car there, it's too late, you're already in an accident. <laughs> so what I would do is I, I, I broaden out the perspective, and that actually reduces the blind spots while you're driving. Wow. It's not just a metaphor, it's actually good driving advice. But it's a good metaphor too, because that's what we've got to figure out how to do, is how do we broaden our perspectives by listening, by reading publications that are different from ours, background, race, uh, education, other types of ideology. How do we broaden that perspective so that we can reduce the blind spots because we all have them? And so one of the things that I've tried to be very conscious about as I've taken on the editorship about two and a half years ago of Word and Way, historically a, a white Baptist publication, uh, but a few years before I, I took over, they came up with a vision that we want to serve all types of Baptists. We want to tell the stories of all types of Baptists. We're not tied to a single denomination. And so part of that has meant I have to reduce my blind spots of Baptist denominations, black and white, that I didn't grow up in. And learning, finding out those voices that are important, finding out the institutions that are important. I, I like what you were talking about with the Louisville Defender about the types of news you decide to choose. Because a lot of times when we talk about media bias, we talk about tone. And, and tone's important. A biased report, a biased newscast can create problems. But more important is what we might call selection or coverage bias. What stories get covered in the first place? What voices get covered in the first place? Because if you read a biased story, you at least know there's something happening. You can Google it. You can find out more about it. You might learn that that story was biased. But if you never hear about something, you don't even know to look it up. Right. So I think that that selection bias, those things that are hanging out in our blind spots, that are hanging out in the blind spots of our journalists, uh, is even more important. And one thing I will, I will close with on, on this question is, I've noticed when I rent cars, my car is older, but when I rent cars, they have the little the little lights now on the side mirrors. Have you seen those where it like flashes? It tells you when you put on your turn signal that there's a car over there. That's the role I think the media should be playing, is that flashing light that says you have something in your blind spot, and if you're not careful, you're going to hurt someone. All right. Don't forget, this is a, yes. This is a conversation I'm going to give a microphone to our extended panel here in a minute, but uh, Mr. Baskins, if you want to kind of speak to uh, that, and then I definitely want to hear from the other guests. All right. Thank you. I come at this from a different perspective because uh, the majority of my professional life, I have been an educator. I've taught at the college level for 46 years, and I'm entering my second year as being editor of the American Baptist Newspaper. The American Baptist newspaper is a publication of the General Association of Baptists in Kentucky. And that is a predominantly black missionary Baptist organization. And what we're focusing upon uh, is making a transition. The transition from the paper copy to a digital online version. And we're doing it because of partly financial but that is also where our, I guess you could say, the millenniums and the younger people are. And I know sometimes people will say, well, older people can't go online. Yes, you can because you order stuff online. <laughs> so we know people can go online. Uh, but also what we're trying to do with the American Baptist is we're making this transition. Our focus this year is going to be more than just dealing with 
uh, pastor's anniversary occurred, what, what church anniversary happened to, to uh, the schedule, and things on that line, we're going to try to begin to have a broader appeal. And as we're still a Baptist art publication, we're still going to have a Christian focus, but we're going to begin to focus on things about like health, sickle cell, uh, how does sickle cell uh, affect the African-American community? Financial matters, uh, especially with churches and religious organizations. There are too many pastors that I know that spent 30 and 40 years in the ministry. And then because they have not taken care of their financial matters, someone has to take up a collection to pay for their funeral. So how does that tie in with the theme well, as, Reverend, as Dr. Cosby know, uh, I have retired from Berea and I will be coming to Simmons to teach at Simmons to end my career die early. Uh, and as I tell my, told my students, and I will tell the students at Simmons, I'm a firm believer in the philosophy of Dr. Carter G. Woodson, the most distinguished graduate of Berea College. And that is if you the best way to control a person is to control their education. If you control their education, you control how they think. If you control how they think, you control how they act. And that also deals with the newspaper. Because if we just see over and over and over again the negatives, then you're going to always have a problem. So I see the American Baptist as focusing upon the positives but also focusing upon just education and trying to give a total picture. All right, thank you so much. I want to bring up an instance uh, that happened uh, a little bit earlier in the summer. There was a uh, husband and wife duo that owns their own construction company, and they decided to hand out passes uh, to Kentucky Kingdom, Kentucky Kingdom passes. And so on the day of the passes, a lot of people came out to try to uh, be the recipient of this, and uh, the media reported that it was extremely out of control and that the police had to uh, step in. Well, Mr. Brad Harrison reported something different. I'm going to go ahead and give the microphone to you and you talk about why you felt it was important to clear up what you called a misconception, and that really does play into uh, today's topic. Okay, well, when, when you look at media, the first thing you have to understand is that all media is biased. All media is biased because all people have biases. Say it, man. All people have biases. But the main bias when it comes to mainstream media, people often think it's race, and it is at times, but the main bias is money. And that's the main thing that drives the media. So media drives on ratings, and in today's time, they drive on internet clicks, and their advertisers pay per click. So what the media likes to do is the media, it's a business. So the more clicks, the more money it generates from its advertisers. So what the media does is it finds the most sensational, outrageous stories because, hey, let's face it, we all love to see train wrecks. We all love, it's a guilty pleasure we all have. So we, in turn, we also feed the media what the media, what the media produces because we have a thirst for it. But the media, the media likes to play on stereotypes. And for example, if you look at the incident that happened this past weekend, the two mass shootings, mass shootings happen, and this is a gold mine for media outlets. 
media outlets will report on this and then they'll start to implement their biases into generating clicks. I'll give you an example. Uh, yesterday, right now, when you have mass shootings, the world's on edge. People are scared. So the media plays into those fears. So you'll start to see articles pop up. Like yesterday, there was a shooting in Georgia, and it was a simple Walmart shooting. I'm not, no shooting is simple. I don't want to say that. But it was a typical shooting between two people having a disagreement, and the media posts immediately uh, active gunmen or active shooting. On the heels of mass shootings, that sets everyone in a panic. But what happens is these articles get, they get shared. They get shared on social media. They get talked about. They get circulated around, and it, and it generates more money for the media. Now, when it comes to black people, we get it the worst because we don't have a voice because we don't have power. So black people are, are, are what you call the stepping stones for the media. Media is not just news. We have to understand. It's not just the news you watch at, at night. Media is all the information that you consume. When you look at our hip-hop music, when you look at programming that we have on television, it's media. When it comes to black people, we don't own the major media outlets. We don't own the com We don't own record companies. We don't own the major labels. Those are all owned by RCA, Sony, etc. When 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 you have artists that come to a record label, you would think hip hop is all is all one dimensional. You think it's all misogynistic, homophobic, and violent, which the the hip hop that you hear is. But there's all different kinds of hip hop out there. But when they approach these major media companies, these media companies only want to sign the most outrageous types of music, and they produce it. So it gives off the appearance that all black people are this particular way when it's not. But we don't control the media. Wow. Thank you, Fred. Could you give the mic to, um, yeah, go. Do you want to speak to that, Mark? Yeah, I'll, I'll be more than happy to dovetail. Uh, Brad is exactly right. Uh, anything that you consume with an informational nature is media. Oh, I'll stand up so people can see me. Uh, and to touch on the, the story that you reported on, it's all a matter of perspective. You had one perspective that said that everything was out of control and that the police had to be called. And when you get to the nature of the real story, was there a police present? Yeah. Did they have to do anything? No. Did some people get upset? Yes. Was there any rioting? No. But because of the if it bleeds, it leads mentality that the media has, you get these biased types of reporting. And, um, one of the things that I've always done, even when I was with uh, local radio, is I've taken a lot of the TV stations to task in the way that they've reported news stories. I've had these conversations with news directors in some of these TV stations. We haven't gone well for some of them, and some of them they have. But the thing is, and when, when Crystal talked to me about being a part of this, the first thing that I thought of, and it's a hashtag that I use a lot, is controlling the narrative. And with the different types of media that we have, social media especially, since we are overrepresented in social media, everyone in this room has a chance to control the narrative. So in order to fight another layer of the battles that we as people of color have to fight, we have to take these tools, these Facebooks, these Twitters, the, uh, the Instagrams, all the social media that we have, we have to be the ones that control the story. We have to be the ones that tell our truth. 
not only our truth, but the truth. Yes, sir. The truth. Yeah. So while we're quick to mobilize millions of people around a different cause on Facebook, we need to use that same energy to mobilize millions of people to do the things that we need to do, like voting, getting registered to vote, turning out to, to elections, getting a hold of these media companies when they do something that they don't like. Classic example, this is something that I talk to people about all the time. When it comes to the local radio and television stations, every one of those entities has to maintain a public file for the Federal Communications Commission. Not a lot of people though, you don't hear about that quite often because it's maybe once a year that they actually have to talk about it. And in that public file, documented complaints, concerns, questions, everything that you as a consumer have to address. So if there's something going on with these TV stations that you don't like, instead of getting on social media and documenting it, go old school. Write a letter, send an email. They have to keep that information on file. That is another way that we control the narrative. Radio stations especially, because black radio stations especially, and uh, like I was telling Crystal, 40 years in this business from Louisville to Los Angeles and in between, I have seen black newsrooms decimated. Decimated. Black radio is being dumbed down, and it has been for years. So you don't hear news from our perspective like you used to do when I first got started in the business. In order to find any sort of credible black news source, you have to go online now. Roland Martin, who used to be with uh, with radio and TV one, he has his own online platform that I take that I check out every day. Podcasting, another way that we control the narrative. There's so many tools that we have access to. It's a matter of just accessing them, getting to the truth, and reporting that truth. And then when you hear something that the media is doing that is not right, you have to call them out on it. Whether it be through the public file, or whether it be through what you're doing online or on air, you have to be the one that controls the story. You have to be the one that controls your truth, and you have to hold everybody else accountable when they don't do it. Mark Gunn, thank you so much. Give it to Dr. Uh, Jason wants to chime in and kind of talk about y'all's platform and uh, uh, the diversity you brought to WFPL. Sure. Good afternoon, everybody. Yeah. I'll let Dr. Story talk a bit about our show, but I wanted to offer one point about the situation with the passes. Yeah. If you follow Twitter, you notice the reporter, Myra Ansari, who reported the story, is actually the one who called the police. She said that, so she called the cops. She said that people were arguing and she thought they might fight, right? And here you have a person who's not a black woman, not from West Louisville or Urban Louisville, who don't understand black people fight all the time. We argue all the time, grocery store, anywhere we go, right? But to this woman who's not of our community, from our community, just black folk raising her voices was enough for her to call the cops. So how do you, as a person who covered the story, insert yourself to become the story, right? So talk about uh, the, the cultural disconnect between the people who are covering us, our stories. WDRB is, is, a, is a number one criminal in that, in that situation. So. Pardon me, that's why I appreciate folks like Brad and, and Mr. Gunn and uh, Ms. Coleman Bach and, and, and black folk or even white folk who are invested in, you know, expanding their blind spots. And I think we have to pay close attention to, I thought it was very peculiar, that the journalist herself called the cops and then reported to the cops are here. So Dr. Sturgeon talked a bit about our platform. We, we do podcasting 
We do new media, and although we're on an NPR station, which is white owned, we are two black queer folk in the South telling our own stories. And young people, right? We're, we're making, we've been in this for seven years, making history. So I'll let Dr. Story talk a bit about that. Thank you. Uh, um, hi, how y'all doing? Um, actually, my time as an educator has been longer than my time as a podcaster, but I think both are necessary and important. Um, and both try, like as all the panelists have already said, to present a more robust and holistic picture of blackness and of black folk. It's amazing to me that I've been at UofL now for 12 years and I still get black students who have a distorted uh, perception of who they are, you know, their history, where they come from. You still have other educators, right, who still promote lies like Mesopotamia and Greece is where the first man originated, which is just a lie, right? I mean, you had Egypt and it's like 28th dynasty, right? So, I mean, those types of things. You still have this narrative that Cleopatra looked like Liz Taylor when, um, you know, Ivan Van Sertima said years ago in Black Women in Antiquity, she was fat and black, right? I mean, that's what made her beautiful. Right? That's what it means. Right? So we still have this perception of ourselves. Students still come into my classroom with these distorted perceptions. And media add to that distortion. Right? They, they add to the distortion where Black folks not only have a distorted view of their history and what life is like contemporaneously, but also of the way they look, of what they have to bring to the world, of different, of, of those types of things and how much they need empowerment, right? How much they have suffered through a kind of K through 12 educational system and not having teachers that look like them, that represent them. Um, not having mentors that look like them and represent them, right? Having to deal with the paternalism of white liberals, right? And hey, little black boy, hey, little black girl, right? Um, and, and kind of miring through that. And so when we were approached by WFPL seven years ago to do a podcast, uh, we didn't know what podcasting was. This is when podcasts were still kind of new. Um, and we were able to create all of the content. Um, and now where both of us are co-producers of our own podcast. And what we try to do is not only talk about distorted perceptions of blackness, but also queerness, right? We have a mainstream media understanding of queerness is white, okay? Um, and so that's also a problem to me. We have a, a distorted idea of feminism, that feminism somehow began with white women when it didn't. I mean, black women have been talking about the race and gender intersections since the 18th right. century. Mm -hmm. Maria Miller Stewart is the first black woman to speak publicly to a mixed gendered audience, right? And my students don't know that. I didn't know that until I got to college. And that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that mainstream media continues to kind of, oh, it's uh, the anniversary of the women's right to vote. Well, black women don't get the right to vote until 1965, not 1920, you feel me? So this is what I mean. Media, journalists, there's an intention, as all the panelists have mentioned, to control the narrative. And when you control narrative, especially when it's around education and who one is as a person, then you basically control that person. You control those communities. And it's a problem. And so what we try to do with the podcast is represent all of the nuances and intricacies and how we really are um, not what media has said, what history tries to tell us, and what these other you know, instructors, professors, and teachers try to tell us and, and try to use it against us to control us and to control who we are. Uh, Dr. Cosby shared with us a video, and I'm sure may, uh, many of you have probably seen it. Uh, there was a situation, I can't remember the city, but uh, the police were, was called on um, to report to a house that they said was broken into, and upon the police, Coming to the house, uh, the man, the gentleman that they said broke into the house was a realtor. And this has been popping up consistently around the country. They call it what? Uh, eating in the park while black, shopping while black, uh, how the basically an influx of people calling the cops because we are so 
I guess, you know, assuming that we're criminals. Uh, have you, what would you say to that, the coverage of uh, how that's been affecting the nation? Well, I think, you know, one of the things we have to think about carefully is the language. And so uh, it's not that someone was being a realtor while black, driving while black, or this while black. It was that someone called the cops while being racist. And then, you know, we're, we're, putting, we're putting the focus on the wrong spot. And this is one of the biggest problems we have actually right now in the mainstream media is that they are scared of using the R word. They are scared to call something racist. Uh, we saw this, uh, you know, there was just over the weekend, there was a, a piece of Politico. Uh, and then they always come up with these new euphemisms, right? Uh, and it was about Donald Trump's tweets about Representative Cummings and Baltimore. And it was something about how he was beating a racial drum beat. I'm not even sure what that is. I mean, I heard a really nice rate, you know, drum beat as I was coming in. I don't know. I mean, that, that sounds kind of nice, though. But, right? it, no, it was a racist attack on a congressman and a city. Uh, but you see this, you racially charged, racially tinged, you know, all of these euphemisms because they won't just come say racist, even though the Associated Press actually in March of this year finally changed its style guide. It's a style guide that most of the mainstream media uses. It says you can use the word racist, not just in a quotation, and that you shouldn't use words like racially charged, and they continue to do it. And so I think that's part of what we have to do is call out the media when they won't call something. They want to say they're objective. They want to say they're unbiased. But if you don't call racism racism, that's not objective. If you don't call a lie a lie, that's another word. They don't want to use the L word. Right? You'll call a lie a lie. Uh, that's not objective. That's not unbiased. Uh, and so I, I said earlier that, you know, that flashing light on, on our side view mirrors is the role the media should play. Uh, but as we're being reminded, that's also the role we have to play to the journalists when they have their blind spots. We have to be the flashing light, whether it be through writing letters, whether it be through social media, let us the editor, op-eds, whatever, to show them their blind spots and how they're hurting others. Thank you. Mr. Uh, Mr. Gunn hit on something that everybody in here should be deeply concerned about, and that's the decimation of all newsrooms. Uh, it, it's happening in mainstream newsrooms. When I got here in 1997, I had 250 people at the, at the Courier Journal. Today, there's 60. Uh, when this when this this happens, downsizing happens, you know what that means. We will ask, I, let me tell you a little bit about I've worked in eight different newspapers. I've worked in uh, Arkansas, my home state. I've worked in Mississippi. I've worked in Louisiana. i worked in Florida. I've worked in Wilmington, Delaware. I've worked in USA Today in Washington. I tell you that because I've got, for two reasons. Number one, much of my career was in the Deep South. Well, it's not the Deep South, I can tell you. <laughs> uh, it's the Midwest for a little southern exposure. <laughs> Mississippi is the Deep South. <laughs> the other reason I tell you my background is because I've got perspective. I've been around. I know what's happened. Implicit bias is I saw in every news organization that I work for. I was one of the founding editors of USA Today in 1982, the biggest investment in journalism in the 20th century. The day that Marvin Gaye died, we are, this was a page one story. It did not make page one. 
The next day, the New York Times lead story, Marvin Gaye. Washington Post, Marvin Gaye. We had a uh, serious meeting that next day in our newsroom, and the editors admitted that they made a mistake. They didn't listen to it. Uh, I can tell you it starts at the top. Come on, man. It is really, really important to you hire at the top. And then it's really important for that person at the top to hire the right people. Uh, you have to hire people who uh, know what they're getting into. You have to make your expectations known and you have to enforce it. The other part, uh, I think this gentleman alluded to it, the community has to, has to be more active. You have to demand uh, representation of the newspaper. When you see something wrong, you should pick up the news, pick up the telephone, write a letter, come to the newspaper, and complain. <clears throat> That's how we get better. That's why I used to get better. I'm retired. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I used to tell people this all the time. The best thing that you can do to make your newspaper better and more representative is to complain. See something good, call and say, Well, that, that, was, that was good too. We, we, that would make my day. Uh, but it's really, really important that uh, you have integrated newsrooms. I can tell you, when I was in Jackson, Mississippi, I was there for almost 10 years, and I can tell you there ain't nothing anybody in this room can do to me to hurt my feelings. One thing, um, I can speak to this you know, working so many different places. Uh, when you're the top, top editor in a newspaper or even a reporter, you're a person of color, you're a double taxation. Not black enough to some black people, white people, I'm racist. That's just true. I don't say that, uh, I don't see you getting sympathy. That's just the way it is. I got used to it. I got over it. I had to, to be able to do my job. When we reopened the Baker Evers case in 1989 in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, not everybody in our newsroom was in favor of that. Didn't matter. I made the call. I was in charge. And we finally got the case reopened. There was very little support in the community for, for weeks, even in black communities. Merlin was with us from day one. Mm -hmm. Charles was not. Mm -hmm. Charles is a different cat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's a different cat. But, uh, you know, we finally got it reopened. I was telling somebody earlier, it was, this was a miracle. I'm sure a lot of you have seen the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that easy. <laughs> this was a very reluctant prosecution, and I can tell you, I was there. The DA, he reopened the case because it was a found obstacle. Can't go forward. Uh, we don't have a copy of the transcript. Merle had a copy, and she saved it. That wouldn't work. Then uh, he said, Well, we don't have the gun, so we can't go forward. 
this is a true story. I was walking through the newsroom and Jerry Mitchell was a reporter over redhead. Uh, he was out of town. I had to send him to Tennessee to uh, interview Beckwith. Phone rang, asked for Jerry Mitchell, and uh, he was out of town. Tell me better. Guy said, I'm a former sheriff's deputy here in Hines County. I know where the gun is. <laughs> <laughs> the judge kept it as a souvenir. <laughs> <laughs> so we did that story, and that removed the last option. He was prosecuted, uh, convicted, sentenced to his life in prison. That's where he died. Thank you so much, Mr. Ivory. Hey, we have got about just a little bit of time left, and we want to definitely take questions from the audience. If you have any questions for anyone on our panel, and uh, Dr. Carter, what did you? That's it. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I don't think I've heard is that we also, yes, we can complain and we can write letters. But I don't think sometimes we in the black community understand the power of what is in our wallet. Amen. That's yep. right. That's right. Think about it. Uh -huh. Newspapers are business. And they need money to operate. Part of the reason part of the reason that the that the General Association of Baptists in Kentucky with the American Baptist newspaper has moved from a hard copy to a digital copy is financial. Now, financially, I mean, with the digital, and I do have the address, so everyone in here can uh, go to the American Baptist newspaper and see it online and see what we've done in a year, and we will make further progress. But I think we, we have to remember what the dollar represents. So yes, complain. Yes, tell the story. But if a business like a newspaper is not presenting your side of the story, which is your story, then don't spend your money. And I think maybe I sound too much like a Booker T. Washington man, but I think I think there's some value to that. We have to understand that the dollar runs in this country. And what instead what we do is go in many cases spend our money poorly, the little bit of money that we do have, instead of using it to build up quite often our own institutions. Say it, man. And I am one of those, yes, I talked for those more all those years at predominantly white institutions. I'm not gonna apologize for that. And put food on the table. But I also know what quite often what has hurt us is that we gave up those black public schools. And now some of us are thinking about almost like giving up our black churches. Well, are you going to give up your black newspapers? And they need money to operate. So I would say one of the things we always got to keep in mind is how are we spending our money? And are we spending our money with people who are going to present the whole story? And if they are not, then you withdraw the dollars. Yes, sir. All right. Hey, guys, give a shout out. Yes. Thank you. Oh, yes. Okay. Um, the
can we give a shout out real quick? We're talking about controlling the narrative and telling our side of the story. And Simmons College of Kentucky uh, in July launched something called the LENS, which is, and you know, uh, Dr. Cosby loves acronyms, and he broke it down. The LENS stands for Louisville's Ebony News Source, and it's an opportunity for us to tell the whole story or the other side of the story. And so it's a half hour program that airs on Saturdays at 1130 on WBKI. And uh, one of the stories we covered was a gentleman by the name of Robert Holmes and Brad Harrison. He mentioned you that uh, he did an interview with you on your radio program. But Robert Holmes is the guy um, in 2016, shortly after Muhammad Ali passed away, he started a petition because he said the Lord put it on his heart. He wanted to do something to honor Muhammad Ali. He started a petition for the renaming of the Louisville International Airport. He got more than 15,000 names. He said he went to the mayor's office. They shut him down saying we're doing enough for Muhammad Ali. Uh, went to the regional airport authority meeting. Uh, they said, okay, we're not doing anything at this time. Some years go by. They changed the name to the Muhammad Ali, uh, Muhammad Ali International Airport. He wasn't invited. He wasn't recognized for any of his work. But we told that story because it's important, again, to control our narrative. And so I do believe publications like the American Baptist and uh, the Louisville Defender and uh, the Strange Fruit and uh, what Brad Harrison does and Mark Gunn is very important to us controlling our narrative. But not only that, but supporting these publications are also important. Uh, any, uh, Yvonne, you said, yes, I just want to make one quick point. Um, and I agree with wholeheartedly what you've said uh, because the more uh, new sources that we have telling uh, the black narrative is, is very, very important because you never, uh, my mother always told me, you never miss the water until the well runs dry. And if you think about it, uh, Ebony is no longer here. BET is no longer black owned. Uh, Jet's not here. Essence, uh, not here. It's maybe still be here, but I think it's in digital. But the, the point of it is, is that all of these major black news sources are no longer here. They are here, but they may be uh, wide on. So we need to really think about that because it's a scary situation because we do not want that well to run dry. All right. Audience, do we have any questions in the audience? We only have a little bit of time left. We definitely want to hear. Questions? Knowing that we all have blind spots, what are some of the coded words in that uh, us pale faces may be missing in biased reporting? Anyone want to answer that question, Brad? Okay. I'm, I'm glad you asked that because I was going to address that next. One of the one of the things, I'm gonna get to your question. One of the things all of us can do that's most important is teach people how to have critical thinking skills. Because the media puts out information and most people aren't, I'm a news junkie, but most people aren't. Most people will have busy lives and they work and they they depend on the media to inform them and it's often false. I don't want to use Trump's lingo, but it's often not correct news. And we can all teach people how to have critical critical thinking skills and critical reading skills by examining news, but first examining the source. You have to examine the source. If the source is, is, is biased or the source has some type of uh, financial financial motivation behind it, you have to question that source and, and, and check multiple, multiple, multiple uh, different sources. But keyword for you. Keyword that we all that we've seen a lot, uh, thug. Thug was a, a word that was used a lot to replace the N word. Thug was used 
you would see you would see a caption when it involves someone black, and it would say thug. And then if you see someone white commit the crime, it might say suspect. But you have words like that. You have uh, there's different words now that are used, but but thug is the one that comes to mind quite frequently. But but there are a lot of key words out there. But but the, but the key thing is to examine the sources of your media. Black on black crime is another phrase. Right. Black, black on black crime is another phrase. That's a, that's a trigger phrase. You know, in reality, most racial groups commit crimes within their own racial groups. So the notion of black on black crime, never the white on white crime, or Asian on Asian. So again, that's a, a, a notion to pathologize and criminalize and, and make us seem animalistic, right? All crimes committed, most crimes committed within racial groups. So that's another key. You know, black people need to repeat that phrase. Well, black lives matter. What about black on black crime? It's like, you know, the, don't don't buy into the hype. That's another phrase. Right. Don't buy into the hype. I like that. Simple answer for me. When I hear something has happened and they say man, automatically think that's white. Yeah. When they say woman, white. Mm-hmm. When it's anyone in the other ethnic group, then they'll put Hispanic, black. Hispanic man, black man. It's all, and when you say man or woman, it's almost saying, well, all the rest of us are not men or women. So for me, it's just, when I hear those words, my wife and I sometimes, we just hear the story, we know that's a white person. Yeah. I think that's the key. I think it's looking at the comparative language, because we can we deal with a lot of words, but looking within a source, how do you describe people of different races? And there is this normalizing uh, whiteness. Uh, we see this in the white Christian press uh, quite often, that there will only be racial identifiers for people who are not white, or sometimes for people who are not white men. Sometimes it's even a privilege of white men, right? Uh, the Sometimes Conventions Baptist Press had a piece a couple years ago about their diverse uh, slate of leadership. And it was three white men, a black man, and a Latino man. And you can guess which two were identified by race. And the other three were only identified by their job title, right? So their diversity in this was assumed. We already knew that they were white, so we just have to say that. We only identify uh, the other. But we see this in the mainstream media. Uh, in about 15 months, we're going to have a presidential election. And before you start seeing results, you'll see results from the exit polls, where they break down all the demographics. And you will see different things in the demographics. You will see religious groups. You will see how do white Catholics vote versus how do all Catholics. And you can do the math and figure out how did not white Catholics vote. You can see how black Protestants vote. How did white Protestants vote? You can see how white evangelicals voted. They, they, will, they won't ask non-whites, they want to ask black and brown evangelicals, one, are you even an evangelical? Uh, There is this racist stereotyping, and it's the media companies that create the exit polls, and then they create this narrative that see evangelicals support, 81% of evangelicals will say, supported Donald Trump. No, 81% of white evangelicals. As one of the 19%, I'm I'm really disappointed in that number, I'll just be honest, all right? But, But, they're not asking how did black evangelicals vote? Or even, or do they exist? Do they count? Do they matter? Uh, and, and I can guarantee you, unless there's some big repentance, they're not, they're not going to do that. They're, they're normalizing that. But, and then they'll take that number and even say, well, it's not just this is evangelical, so this is really more just Christians. right? This becomes indicative of Christians, even though the, the leaders that they'll trot out right, really aren't evangelicals. They're fundamentalists. That's another one of those words that they're not allowed to use in AP style. They won't call someone a fundamentalist. Jerry Falwell Jr., Robert Jeffress, and Paula White, these are not evangelicals, but then they're used to represent Christians in the United States because of this media false labeling. So looking at how do we 
compare, how do we talk about people of different races in the same source? Well, it looks like we have just about five minutes left, and I guess we could do our wrap-up here. Where do you see this topic, this subject matter, uh, five years from now? How will the media industry, uh, their reporting, transform or uh, dip, dip five years from now? Panel, anyone want to? Well, I'll offer to answer a question if I may. What I'm most excited about about the future is a lot more young people, a lot more poor folk, LGBT folk, women, having access to things like YouTube, podcasting, digital media, that now each one of us has the power to tell our own story through your cell phones, right, through, through your, um, any kind of multimedia equipment that you have. And so I'm really inspired, it's really going to be up to us, Eddie, to tell our own stories. And so I'm, I'm really inspired about the way in which news reporting and the news uh, gathering is really being outsourced. There's no longer kind of gatekeeping going on. I don't have to necessarily go to college for it, but that there are everyday people who become storytellers. Um, I'm gonna hope that five years from now that people can uh, check the sources and be able to think for themselves because uh, uh, one of the things uh, I've, I've watched, I'm a news junkie too, so I've watched everything. I, I do watch Fox News, okay? I watch it because I wanna see, I wanna see what they're saying, okay? And uh, I, I, it was an interesting thing. I, I went to sleep watching uh, MSNBC and I woke up, I think my husband changed the channel, but I woke up watching Fox News and I thought I was in the Twilight Zone. Right, Mark, Mark? Five years from now, the truth will still be the truth. Say it, man. No matter how you slice it. And to Jason's point, and I, I find myself in a in a rather unique position because I am somewhat of an age, almost 60, but I've been in the industry long enough to see it evolve. And so I cling to the old school journalistic standards in that you check your source and you check your source again, and then you do a third check to make sure that the first two sources were correct. So what I'm hoping and what I'm starting to see is that this younger generation of uh, pundits and reporters and journalists, I'm hoping that they will cling to those ideals as well. So it's like uh, one reporter said a long time ago, and I've, and I've, I've never, never let go of this, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. So as long as this next generation of, of media professionals keeps that in mind and are willing to listen and learn from some of us that are still willing to teach, I think journalism in this country, media in this country will be fine because, again, as long as we have young people that are hungry enough to control our narrative, uh, we're going to be fine, but it's just a matter of holding the old guard in check. And, you know, anybody that, that is a part of my audience, Brad, uh, Michael, who I met earlier, uh, Crystal, anybody that has seen anything that I do or listen to any one of my podcasts, um, I very seldom get any pushback because, again, I'm old school. Anything that I say, I'm going to back up with some sort of hat. Uh, so that, to me, as long as I continue to do that, you know, I can hold my podcast up against anybody else's as far as something that's being uh, integral. And we got to wrap up here in a bit. I'm going to let um, Mr. Ivory and then Dr. Story, do you have anything else? Okay. You know, five years from now, I hope that people's uh, critical thinking skills will, will be at a heightened level because it's really going to be needed. 
I'm not as optimistic as some of my fellow panelists. I, I know what's going on. I was, I, I was there. I was on the ground floor. You know, when USA Today started in 1982, we had 1,200 people, journalists. Today, there's about 200. That sounds like a lot, but it's not. Paradigm shift. <laughs> yes, it, it is a major paradigm shift. And this reduction in force is serious. And the only thing that I can say really uh, is that the people in this room and the communities across the country need to demand better. Thank you so much. And Mr. Bryan, I uh, wanted to say one last thing. One quick word. Uh, I, I go back and forth between cynicism because of what's been happening and hope because of kind of the Wild West and the new media and social media and so forth. Um, so I just want to end instead with what I have more of an aspirational hope uh, for what we'll see in five years. And I, I took this after reading through the book, uh, The Race Beat. It's a fantastic look at how the role of the black and white press played in the civil rights movement. And they end the book, they quote this a couple times, they end the book with John Lewis's comment about the, the importance of the media, and he realized that he was safe as long as the camera lenses could see him, and that he was not safe, uh, and guards mocked him that there were no newspaper men around. Uh, and so they end the book with this line from John Lewis, if it had not been for the media, the print media and television, the civil rights movement would have been like a bird without wings, a choir without a song. Uh, and so my aspirational hope is that we will have more wings and more songs. All right. All right. Good Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Simmons College of Kentucky at simmonscollegeky.edu. Simmons is S-I-M-M-O-N-S. Earlier, we had a conversation with the president of Simmons College of Kentucky, Kevin Cosby, and you can hear that back in episode 80. It's a fascinating conversation. He gives more detail about the history of Simmons, as well as we talked about a number of other important issues involving Baptist and race and faith. As always, you can find us at wardenway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you have any comments or feedback, please send them to me at bkaler at wardenway.org. If you'd like to give to donate to this program, we greatly appreciate it. And all you have to do at wardenway.org is hit the donate button. And whatever you give there will help for the production of this podcast, as well as our website and our monthly magazine. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook. Head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. Thanks for listening.